right. Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. My name is Dave. I'm the, uh, the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson. And um, by way of introduction, I want to just um, let you know that I have a stutter. So just so you know what's happening, um, it kind of comes in and out, comes and goes. So I just want to make sure that you all know what that is. Um, it is excitement for the game last night, huh? Let's ha- have a little corporate bear down. Um, yeah, it was just uh, very fun. There's a lot going on right now, a lot of fun things in Tucson. My family and I went to the book festival on campus there yesterday, which was very fun. And so we got to kind of get our, you know, academic side going. And then we got to go home and cheer on the Wildcats. So see, we're a diverse family, diverse group of people. We got a lot of sports um, going on. It is Selection Sunday. That's the last I'm going to say about that. Um, we deserve a number one seed. Okay, the U of A does. So, okay, it's the last I'll say about it. But we can talk about that more if you're into that type of thing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, there's this school here um, nearby, the big school, big campus, and we have a basketball team, and a lot's happening with that. So, um, also, as Jared said, I want to invite you um, to notice we are significantly smaller in numbers this morning. Um, the m- majority of college students and young families that are here um, have gone out of town this week because of school is out. It's um, spring break. In fact, it, m- my own family is uh, uh, heading out of town. Um, but um, in a c- couple days, and we're excited for that. But I want to say again, we've said this before, so especially with summer coming up, we see this as a good thing. Not because we don't like the college, you know, crowd or anything like that, but we see this as an opportunity to build community amongst ourselves, to get to know one another, to grow as a church in um, knowing one another. And so over the summer specifically, we're going to have some different things to um, encourage us to move toward one another and to kind of take advantage of having a smaller group, kind of some things that we can do that we potentially otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And one of those, as Jared mentioned, is the um, is the St. Patrick's Day parade over there. I admit I didn't know I was picking out a green shirt um, in light of um, in light of St. Patrick's Day. I try to avoid that type of thing because I look like a leprechaun. Um, <laughs> my beard and my height and so green. So um, I don't know. I might take advantage of it and let people take pictures with a leprechaun um, over at the park. But Okay, um, okay, raise your hand if you need a Bible. Um, we're going to be in Mark, and um, we want to make sure everyone has one to walk through. So if you don't have a Bible with you today, go ahead and hold your hand up high, and we will get you one, okay? Because we have a lot of verses to walk through. We're going to be in like 18 verses today. We bit off a big chunk. And if you prefer a Bible in Spanish, if kind of your heart language is Spanish, we have some in um, Spanish as well, and so I want to make sure everybody has one. And so while you turn there, let me just kind of set up again where we're headed. Um, We're walking through the book of Mark. This is the gospel according to Mark. The word gospel means good news, and it's the good news of Jesus, that he is God the Son, and that he's ushering in his kingdom. And this is, and so we're walking through that, and yet what we see time and time again, and what we'll see here is that the people Jesus is interacting with, they don't recognize him for who he is. And they don't really get it right. So time and time again, we see Jesus proclaiming with his words and living out with his actions the good news that he is God the Son, that he is the King, and that he's come to usher in his kingdom. And yet people don't 
get it. And they continually come and interact with him. And in this, um, in this big chunk of scripture that we're looking at today, 18 verses, we see two somewhat similar interactions where Jesus um, heals. And, and, and then he goes on and we see that these people want him for what he can give them. But, but then they don't necessarily want to follow him holistically. They don't want to surrender to him and follow with him because they don't get who he is. And, and what we'll see today is that Jesus uses his power and his position to, to, to clean and to restore and then to forgive and to heal. And yet the people continually fail to respond to him and to follow him, to go all in, if you will. And so again, we have a lot to walk through. Um, we have a significant amount that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try um, to take on. So um, I'm going to pray first, okay? Because my, my prayer for us is that as we encounter God in his word, is that we will see and respond to Jesus. That we won't be like the people in, in, this, in this case who see him, and walk away, or who see him for what he can give them, and then turn away. So so let's pray and ask God to lead us through this time to open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to see and respond to Jesus, okay? Because let's remember, the main question in this entire account is, who is Jesus, and how do you respond to him? That's what the author is challenging us to consider. So with that, let's, let's, let's go before God in prayer. Thank you, uh, thank you, Father, for this time we have together. Thank you for um, this, this season, even these couple of weeks as we're in the spring break time of year. Thank you that um, though we don't have you know, daylight savings or like, there's kind of a, um, a, a change in the air. There's, you know, the sun is, is coming up um, earlier and we can enjoy some nice, cool weather and some warmer days. And um, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for this chance to gather together as your people. Lord, we openly confess that as we meet together on Sundays, we're not playing church. This isn't something that we just come and do and then kind of check off the list and go on about our week, Lord. But we are, we are formed individually and corporately as your people. And so, Lord, as we gather together, as we now sit under the authority of your word, of, 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 of the good news of Jesus, we pray that through the Holy Spirit, you will open our, our hearts and our minds to hear and respond to who you are, Lord Jesus. I pray that no one in here would, would um, remain unchanged. I pray that we would leave here rightly responding to you as our King, as our Savior, and our Lord, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, pick up with me. We're just going to dive right in because I don't have time for any more of these shenanigans talking about leprechauns and things like that. So we've got a lot to cover. Let's get after it. So pick up with me, Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And just so you know, I'll walk through and just kind of talk as we go because um, there's too much to just bite off big chunks. So as we go, verse 40, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will... You can make me clean. So um, this is a, a gross understatement. Okay, the author here. Now think back to this is first century um, Israel, um, first century Jewish people. And he just kind of, the author just kind of goes right on. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, this doesn't happen. Okay, this, um, in this day, again, we can in our 21st century 
eyes just kind of read that and be like, okay, a leper comes to him, Jesus kind of doing what he does and move right along. But that does not happen. All right, no one would just have a leper come up to them. Let me explain a couple things about why this is such a radical interaction. Um, because leprosy is, um, was something that, that, that everybody stayed away from. In fact, the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 13, there are a number of rules put in place for how people with what the Bible calls leprosy would interact with other people. And um, the term here, the biblical term, is, is to cover any kind of skin um, disfiguration or any kind of disease. What we have today called leprosy le- is called Hansen's disease. But this involved all sorts of things like, like um, ringworm or pink eye or all kinds of things like that. Um, any kind of contagious skin discoloration or disease. Now, Hansen's disease, what we have today... And what um, we think of specifically um, was incredibly grotesque. And, and let me just explain a little bit about it. Okay? It was um, the, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, if you've ever, ever um, um, heard of him. He's a, a well-known historian who, who wrote many things that really help us to better understand first century culture in the Middle East. And Josephus said, someone with leprosy is really no different than a walking corpse. Think of the walking dead, right? Some of you, I know your minds are already there. But this was a, a, a physical and a social death in many ways. If you had this, um, I, I don't want to go too far because some people might get queasy, but it involved um, really grotesque growths and um, limbs would eventually um, decay and die in the skin. Um, sometimes you could lose your own limb if you maybe grabbed something. You, didn't, you had no sense of f- f- feeling, and so you might grab something, say turn a f- faucet or something like that, or pick something heavy up and actually lose your limb completely and not even know it because um, the, the skin had died and, and decayed, and, and it was a, a deterioration physically. And yet socially the same was true. In fact, the the Old Testament law, the Hebrew law, basically protected society from these contagious diseases, but really didn't look out for the individual. Because someone who had this disease, as if that's not hard enough, the the rule was they had to um, keep track and stay 50 feet, 50 steps away from anyone else. So that someone else wouldn't unknowingly come and interact with them and, 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 and contract this, this uh, d- disease. And beyond that, they had to keep their appearance disheveled. Okay, their hair had to be unkempt. They had to rip their clothes and have torn clothes. And so not only did they have bandages and wounds and all sorts of things, but they had to look as if you didn't want to come near them. And beyond that, they had to yell out, Unclean! I'm unclean! Don't come near me. I'm unclean. Can you imagine how exhausting every interaction with a human being, that's how you had to present yourself. 
So anytime you wanted to venture out into public, you had to act this way. So for most people, it was just better to stay in the, in the, in the, in the outsides, in the desolate places, as it's called, in communities or communes where they would stay and live together so they didn't have to interact with one another they couldn't or with other people they couldn't get you know give anyone else their disease and in some ways it kind of protected them they were afar they didn't have to do that so this guy though this leper approaches Jesus again this didn't happen he took such a great risk can you imagine saying that Unclean, unclean, the, the thoughts, the everything, it just would get exhausting. I know some in here have different disabilities or different things. I'll admit, for me, um, I, mine is not as extreme, but having a speech impediment, sometimes making a, f- a f- phone call can be exhausting. I would, it's much easier for me to speak in front of a thousand people than to call someone that I don't know. In fact, this is a true story. My own grandfather one time hung up on me because he thought I was a telemarketer. And I called back, was like, don't hang up, Grampy. You know, and uh, he had bad hearing. And, and he literally was like, I could hear him in the back. I'm like, that's a telemarketer and hung up. And I'm like, it's your grandson. Um <laughs> But I mean, we, you know, but sometimes that just that kind of thing, that's the closest I can relate, but others, we can just think about how exhausting, yet he goes to Jesus, and what does he say? If you're willing, will you heal me? Not if you're able. Okay, this is a tragic, sad interaction, but it also reveals, again, that people continue to not recognize Jesus for who he is. Remember, they see him. He's already healed different people. He's already cast out demons. He's already healed the sick. He's already done all sorts of things. And people continue to think he's a traveling magician. Not if you're able. Yeah, you can do these things. You can conjure up your tricks and, you know, heal different people. But he says, this guy doesn't come and say, look with me in verse 41. Jesus is moved with pity. The guy doesn't say, if you're able... He says, if you're willing, and he doesn't say, heal me. He says, cleanse me, restore me. And Jesus is moved with pity. What this means is it means in his gut. Okay, the, 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 the language there is not just like from afar, like you could picture God maybe like, oh, the poor, you know, human, the poor, in whatever, you know, guy, just, he's despicable. I'm going to stand afar and you yell unclean from over there and I'll zap you with, a lightning bolt, and you'll be healed all of a sudden. That's not what's happening here. He says, if you're willing, kind of questioning God's character, can you relate with that? God, I believe you're God. I believe you can do whatever you want, but sometimes I wonder, are you willing? Do you really care? Are you really close? And what does Jesus do? He's moved with compassion to his gut, to the point where he's so compelled that he feels it in his stomach and he reaches out. Jesus' response is no less scandalous than the initiative of the leper. The leper breaks through and says, Jesus, can you help me? And Jesus crosses a grand canyon of separation. In every way, Jesus crosses cultural, religious, physical boundaries. And what does he do? He touches this man and he says, I am willing. He's again asserting his his character, his goodness. He's not only able, 
but he's willing. And he says, I am willing. Be clean. Again, this was absolutely unheard of. Let us not overlook this. Okay, Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. As we've seen before and we'll see coming up, he's not like the scribes or the teachers or the authorities of their day. Okay, because remember, a, a religious authority, a priest or a scribe could not teach or could not be in the synagogue or in the temple, could not perform their function if they became ceremonially unclean. What does Jesus do? Is he worried about that? From our perspective, he takes an incredible risk, right? He, he touches this guy. Anyone else would have been ceremonially unclean, but Jesus touches him. And the leprosy doesn't get on Jesus. Jesus gets on the leper. And he becomes completely clean. Okay, you've heard some of the Chuck Norris jokes probably, right? Like, right, have you heard these? Like, uh, Chuck Norris doesn't do, like, push-ups. He pushes the earth down. Or Chuck Norris doesn't, um, when he jumps into water, he doesn't get wet. The water gets Chuck norris Like, I don't know if you ever heard any of these. Well, I mean, this is the ultimate, right? Jesus doesn't get leprosy, the leper gets cleansed by Jesus. He doesn't contract leprosy. Jesus is not ceremonially unclean in any way. But he, he, he fully cleans this guy. He restores him. He's moved with compassion. And so go on. What does Jesus say in verse um, 43? Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. This language is not mixing words. Sternly warned him. It actually means the flaring of the nostrils. That's kind of a, a graphic picture. But Jesus is so stern with his charge. He says, don't go tell anybody. He commands him. Now, why would he do this? Why would Jesus say that? He says, go um, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, offer your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Why would he do this? Right? We saw Jesus, when he cast out the demons, he commanded them not to tell anyone. And again here, he commands the leper, don't go tell anyone. Why would he do this? I think two things. Most scholars agree two things are happening here. One is Jesus is again looking out for the good of this man with leprosy. Because in order for him to be socially accepted, to be restored in community, he would need to go through the right religious laws and the rituals. If he just ran out and was like, hey, everyone, I'm clean, and he still had his clothes torn and his hair all crazy, or someone saw him and recognized him and he hadn't been pronounced clean, he would remain an outcast. So Jesus is really looking out for the good of this individual, and... He's again, once again, he's protecting his, um, his mission. Okay, Jesus is protecting his mission of, of how his kingdom will come forward and how the, the understanding of the kingdom of God will be known. Because the crowds, remember, the crowds are, are mentioned many, many times throughout Mark. And it's not a good thing. It's not like, yeah, the crowds are here. Great, let's, everyone's here. Let's, let's do these things. No, the crowds would come and say, Jesus, do your tricks. Do what we want you to do. And they were closing in on him. They were surrounding him, trying to force him to submit to them. Jesus arrives, the King, God the Son. And the people said, oh, it's good that you're here, Jesus. We want a king. We've been expecting a king. Here's what you're going to do. That's not responding to Jesus as the king. That's forcing Jesus to be a puppet. 
like sadly too often you and I do as we approach Jesus with our own agendas rather than surrendering to him. Even this man with leprosy, what happens in verse 45? He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Picture this scene. This man with leprosy comes pleading, taking every chance, coming to Jesus. Jesus, I know you're able, but are you willing? Can you help me? Can you heal me? And what does Jesus say? Yeah, I'm willing. And he touches him. Perhaps the first time in decades. Like, touch your own arm. Imagine not being touched by another human for decades. Jesus compassionately touches this man. He shows him that he's good. But once again, in verse 45, this guy all of a sudden um, becomes complacent. He was um, enamored with Jesus. Jesus heals him. And now he doesn't fully trust Jesus' good character. Right? Jesus says, don't go tell anyone, all right? Go through these things. And the guy doesn't want to respond to him. He doesn't want to follow his lead. He says, okay, now I've got what I wanted. And he just runs out and he tells everyone. Like you and me, he approaches Jesus for what he can get. But he doesn't fully understand who he is. So he doesn't respond to him. But we see that Jesus uses his power in this case to exchange who he is. Exchange his power, exchange his position in order to cleanse and to restore this man. Because what happens here? Okay, this is enormous. We need to keep going on. We're right at the, we're about to go into chapter two, right? This is a big day for us as a church. But, but this, last, this last part we can't miss right here. Because what happens? Jesus exchanges himself for this man. This man had to live in desolate places, far out, detached from humanity. Jesus is free. He's clean. He's free to walk amongst the people as he wills. But he uses his power, he uses his position, he touches this man, and it says the man goes out and speaks freely. And what happens to Jesus? He now has to go out into desolate places because the crowds are pressing in on him. He exchanges himself. This is a foreshadowing, a picture of what would come on the cross. A day will come where Jesus, God the Son, The same one in verse 11 of chapter 1, right? God peels back the heavens and declares, You are my son, and you I am well pleased. And one day Jesus would hang on the cross, and he would hear, and he would declare, Father, why have you forsaken me? He would experience separation from the Father, so that you and I, through faith in him, can hear, You are my beloved In you, I am well pleased. Jesus exchanges himself to clean and to restore. And yet the people continue not to get who he is. So he's forced out into desolate places. And the crowds are coming after him. And now, pick up with me in chapter 2. If you want to uh, turn to your neighbor and say, welcome to chapter 2. I think this is like four or five weeks in here, right? So we've been in chapter one for a while. We're now entering into chapter two and pick up with me. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, 
He, it was reported that he was at home. Now, let me just say there, this is likely either Jesus' own home or it's the place where he's kind of set up shop. It's likely the, the kind of the source of this account of Mark. It's, that's Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers. This is potentially either Peter's home or Jesus' kind of home away from home. Or either way, it's Jesus' place of solitude, the only place he could go to kind of get some rest, to, to get away from the crowds who are trying to control him. And he goes over, he goes there, and what does it say? It was reported, so word got out. Somebody kind of snitched him out. And then verse 2, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So the people found him. They come crowding in. They're inside the house. They're all over. What does Jesus do? Guys, will you leave me? No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, will you leave me alone? What does he do? He picks up and he was preaching, preaching the word to them. We see that theme throughout. Jesus continues with his mission of proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of God. And what happens in verse 3? And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So just picture this scene, okay? Jesus is there. He cleanses a leper. Right, This great exchange, if you will. Jesus exchanges himself for this leper. The leper's now free to walk and do his thing. And Jesus now has to run out into desolate places because the crowds are pursuing him. And then Jesus withdraws to his home, his place of rest, and the people find out he's there and they gather in. And again, the, the term for crowds, okay, they are used multiple times throughout Mark. And almost every single time it's to impede Jesus. They're, they're pressing in and they're hindering the ministry of Jesus. So once again, these crowds are not a good thing. But they gather into his house, right? They come crashing in. And then what happens? There's no room at the door. So these people are carrying someone who is paralyzed on his own bed. And these guys somehow get up on the roof and they break the roof. Okay, this, this, we might think, oh, somehow we just overlook this. No, they break the roof. The roof was likely made of things. That, it's not like there was just a nice, easy panel that was there just in case someone wanted to come, you know, come in from above. That didn't happen. So somehow they break it. There's debris probably falling. Jesus is teaching, like, what in the world? And, and then all of a sudden, the roof is broken. It's pulled back, and these people lower this man who is paralyzed, who the author refers to as the paralytic. And he's there. And now Jesus is faced once again with a situation. And what does he say? What does he say to this man? He says he saw their faith and he said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. They come there. They don't ask anything necessarily of him, but he's there. And then Jesus proves the point in a couple ways. Uh, now, let me admit, okay, because again, most of these things we can read and kind of move on and be like, I don't get this, what's going on. I personally, maybe it's because I'm the youngest child, I'm the youngest of four boys, but two things I personally don't like, and perhaps you can relate with me. I don't like it when people call me um, a condescending term. And this has been adopted. You might do this, so 
Perhaps shame on you, but right? If you maybe have heard this, you've or you've seen this exchange where like an 18-year-old kid working at a coffee shop calls like a 50-year-old, you know, bud. Hey bud, what can I get you? I mean, I call my seven-year-old bud, but you see this kind of exchange, maybe you don't relate with this, but for me personally, when someone or like someone younger will call my wife hun, or you know, you kind of see this thing, you're like, man, that's kind of a condescending term. Don't you call little kids that, or it would be much worse, right? If they're like, hey, sonny, kind of patted your head, rubbed your head a little bit, and, you know, maybe gave you a little pat on the bottom, and it's like, what are you doing? They don't call me. Well, this, when Jesus calls this, 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 this man's son, it's a clear um, establishment of authority, right? He doesn't know this person. I don't, we don't know the age, but seemingly it's, it's, it wouldn't be normal for him to call in this kind of condescending term. But he does. He comes in, hey, bud. No. Hey, son. Uh, um, your sins are forgiven. The second thing, forgiving sins? Again, I personally, if someone said, oh, I forgive you. It's like if you sneeze and someone said, oh, I forgive you. Like, what? Why, why, you don't, for, why do you forgive me? I didn't do anything to you. This Well, Jesus saying, I forgive you to this man is incredibly profound. And you see it by the response of the people there right after. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak with that? He's blaspheming. He is calling into question God. He is offending God by saying, I forgive you to this person. They don't get who, he's in, who he is. And what happens? It says, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's such an important question. You and I and the readers are invited to respond to this rhetorical question. Who alone can forgive sins? Isn't it just God who can do that? Yes. We're invited to respond, yes, absolutely, only God can forgive sins. And who here is forgiving sins? Jesus. This is a clear invitation for you and I to remember, Jesus is not just a traveling magician. He doesn't just come to do tricks. He's not someone to just have meet our needs. He's not a puppet on a string. He's Almighty God. He's God the Son. He's the King who's ushering in His kingdom. And Jesus perceives in His heart what these people are saying. And they seem to not really notice that. I just, I picked that up, right? They're not like, hey, how'd you know that? He says that He perceived that they were thinking that in their hearts, and He calls them out on it. And he says, you know, what, why are you saying I am blaspheming? Why do you question, verse 8, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which one's easier? Jesus is asking this. Oh, well, sure, Jesus, it's really easy to tell someone who's paralyzed, rise, get up, and walk. That's obviously not easy. So he is asserting that his, his, his authority. Also, though, to forgive sins is not easy. Some scholars, look at me, some scholars say that the shadow of the cross, you see the cross here, the cross casts a shadow over the entire ministry of Jesus. 
Because in order for him to usher in his kingdom, in order for him to forgive sins, in order for him to restore and to clean and to forgive and to heal, Jesus must go to the cross. The, the big language for this is cruciform. There's a cruciformity about Jesus' life and ministry, which means that, that suffering, which means that the reality of the need for the cross overshadows all that Jesus would do and all that he would say. And yet the people continue not to see this because perhaps this paralytic, perhaps these people came with an agenda and they thought, Jesus, if you can just help me over this little hump, I'll take it from there. Jesus, if you can just help me be able to walk, my life will be fine. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Is he unloving? Is he uncompassionate? We just saw the interaction with the leper, right? He reached out and he touched this leper and he healed him. So why doesn't Jesus, the first thing he says, like, yes, my son, you can walk. Get up and walk. Go on your way. Because we've said this time and time again. Listen, Jesus loves you too much to leave you alone, and to just meet the need that you think needs to be met in order to get over the hump. Because eventually the euphoria of being healed, of being able to walk even, would wear off. Right? If you have kids, you've experienced this. One more cupcake, please! One more cupcake and life will be fine. I will never ever um, resist you again, Father. Okay, fine, here's a cupcake. And then, of course, what happens? No, don't make me go to bed. I, you know, it's, and that's a seemingly tried example, but where does it stop? For all of us. God, if you just give me this, I'll be fine. God, if you just give me clear speech, I'll be fine. My life will be set. God, if you just enable me to walk, if you just give me a spouse, if you just give me children, if you just give me whatever it might be. But Jesus loves us too much. He sees through what we think is going to meet our ultimate need, and he goes to the very source. Because the, the roots of our, of our desire to live life apart from God run so deeply. The roots of our problem run so much more deeply than our finances, than our functionality, than our ability, than our, our social, our relational status, our finances. The roots of our problem run so deeply to the point where we have sinned against Almighty God and we are relationally broken and disconnected from Him. And Jesus knows that our greatest need is to be restored and forgiven. And so He breaks through the smoke screen and says, Your sins have been forgiven. And that is not to make light of the very real difficulties that many of us walk with today. But that's to inform them. Those things fall into right perspective in light of a restored relationship with God through the forgiveness of sins, through the death of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus says that won't come easily. And then he, he challenges these scribes. And then he continues. He shows his love and his compassion. He says, now you are healed. Uh, pick up your bed and walk. 
He restores this man and he, he gets up and he, and, he, and he picks up his bed and he leaves. But the people continue not to get it. The leper didn't get it. The paralyzed man and his friends didn't get it. The scribes, the authorities, the religious people didn't get it. And Jesus says, why are you so offended that the Son of Man can forgive sins? He uses that title for the first time because he's reminding us of who he is. The Son of Man is, is used um, 14 times in Mark. And each time it's used to show his authority to, to forgive sins and his authority to define the Sabbath, which was a really big deal then. It's also used three more times to talk about the coming judgment, the Son of Man. And then it's used multiple times, nine times, Again, to remind that the Son of Man must suffer. That Jesus, though He's fully God, would become fully man. To lay down His life. To use His authority and His power and His position for you and me. To usher in His kingdom. To clean those who need cleansing. To restore those who have been isolated. To forgive those who have sinned. To heal those who need healing. Jesus has come to usher in his kingdom. And yet these people continue time and time again. Not to see him. Not to understand who he is. And not to respond to him. And in turn they reject the king. They reject the kingdom. And they reject the call to follow. So again as we close. I want to ask you. How will you respond to Jesus. Will you be like the leper? Will you come with a desire with great earnestness and then when you know that wears off you question God's goodness and you turn away from him? Will you be like the paralytic who just wants a little help over this hump? If you just give me this, Jesus, then I'll be fine and then once you have that you turn away from him and you go and walk your own way. Or will you be like the scribes and the Pharisees, and will you be offended? Will you be angered by the lordship that Jesus calls you and I to follow him? The full surrender to who he is. To trust that he's able and he's good. This is Jesus. He's the king. He's come and he's used his power. He's used his privilege. How will you follow him? Let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this time, this time in your word. I pray that, Lord, that we have been challenged um, to consider how will we follow you? How will we follow Jesus? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are good, but thank you that you are also great. God, thank you that you don't stop short of calling for our complete surrender, for calling us to follow you completely. Or to respond to your commands, to, to know you and to trust you in all of life. Not just to get our needs met and then to walk on on our own, apart from you. Lord, I pray now in this time of response, this time of singing. Lord, I pray that we will each do work with you. That we will consider how we have responded to you and how we will respond to you. Lord, I pray for every person in here. I pray that we would all see your goodness and see your authority and respond to you in faith and surrender 
and in worship. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.